Jesus, thank you so much for meeting with us here today. Lord, thank you so much for the words that you're speaking into our hearts even now of your love, your sacrifice, your devotion, your affection. Father, I pray that you would make yourself very real to all of us today. From your word, from the conversations that we have today, as we go throughout our day, as we lay our heads on our pillows tonight, I pray that you would be speaking your love into the lives of every single person here. God, we thank you so much. Thank you so much for meeting with us here today. In your precious name we pray. Amen. You can all have a seat. <laughs> red? Oh, okay. guys doing today? Ah, good. All right. All right. Happy Mother's Day. Oh, thanks. Oh, okay. Kyle and Steph are out of town today, this weekend, so I have the awesome opportunity of speaking with you. My name is Vanessa, and um, yeah, happy Mother's Day. I'm just really excited. Oh, all of the kids can go away. And listen, we, I just came from, <laughs> I just came from Grace, which is, we're t one church, two location. T t yep. And, um, I just came from there and the guy who was do doing the announcements, he could not hear, like I just heard, she's saying like, the kids can go. He didn't hear that. So he's literally walking through the church going, what? And one of the moms says, get the kids out. <laughs> so I was like, spoken like a true mom. Happy Mother's Day to you, too. All right. So, um, yeah, I'm really happy to be here. Happy Mother's Day to all of the moms, the spiritual moms, um, both who are just incredibly important to um, and vital, man, to this world. And um, for, you know, a lot of you, this is a really happy day. For some of you, it's not so happy of a day. So, you know, Mother's Day can just be, you know, a reminder of things that hurt. And so whether you are celebrating or whether you're just hoping that this day goes by really quick, I'm just really happy that you're here. Um, I became a mother for the third time about 30 days ago. Um, I have two boys. Did you find the PowerPoint? Did you? Sweet. Um, yep. Cause, oh, there they are. So I have two boys. They're back in the back hiding right now. So the one on the right is Alistair. He's six. The one on the left is Ollie, who is almost completely potty trained. Praise the living Jesus. And then um, on April 13th, our long-awaited little girl came into the world, Leona Lucille. So she's a month old today on Happy Mother's Day to me. Um, she's dainty. She's pretty. She smells nice. She doesn't take her pants off in public. She doesn't hit me. She's only a month old, but we really have high hopes for her. <laughs> uh, I'm not really going to be preaching like a Mother's Day message per se today and all of the men in the room just breathed a huge sigh of relief. Or maybe they got a little nervous because now you have to listen. Um, 
But this is, I'm not a huge fan of like preaching holiday messages just for the sake of doing that. So here's me being a rebel. Watch out. But if you have been paying attention to our Getting Past Your Past series, this is not part five, but it really could be. So um, you can kind of just take that as it is. But about a week before Leona was born, um, I was watching Ollie, my little one. He was playing on his tablet. And um, yes, I am the parent who, instead of effective parenting, I just throw a tablet at the kid's face and I go into the bathroom and eat Sour Patch Kids, um, which would, yep. And uh, that's a two and a half pound bag of Sour Patch Kids that I got for my birthday. And that is our bathroom. So um, (laughs) judge if you will. So our kids have a couple tablets. We used to buy like super cheap ones for like 40 or 50 bucks because we knew that little kids just break stuff all the time. And so, but what we were realizing is that the cheap tablets break themselves before the kids can even break them because they're cheap. And so Steph and I decided to invest in some more expensive ones, a little bit higher quality. And then we just got like really some super heavy duty cases to protect them. Ollie, um, who is, um, he's just a whole different animal. If you know Ollie, you know that he is just a, I don't even know what he is. And so if you have two kids, usually the way it goes is your first one is like super laid back and like listens pretty good for the most part and kind of goes with the flow. This is the wise one, makes pretty good decisions. Ollie, on the other hand, my second one is like, I don't even... He's just a maniac. I mean, he's, uh, there's no reasoning with him. There's no middle ground. It's like zero to 10, you know, and there's no in between emotionally, physically, mental, all of that. And so Ollie was the one who just a few months ago, if you remember, like Kyle was in the middle of his message and Ollie had his fire truck and in the middle of the message comes all the way around in front of everybody. It goes all the way around and like leaves and we don't know what happened and Kyle didn't know what happened. And did he notice anybody? No. Did he care? Nope. Not even a little bit, but that's Ollie. So Ollie was playing with his tablet the one day and I was watching him, but he wasn't playing with one of like the nice ones, the ones that we like spent a lot of money on and had really nice cases with it. It wasn't the black tablet or the red tablet, which are the nice ones. The screens are nice. They're expensive. You can actually see what you're doing. You can actually hear what you're doing. The processors are fast. There's a nice sound quality. No, Ollie was playing with this one. And this is one of the ones that we just, you know, we wanted to replace. And he is in love with this tablet. If he has the choice between the $250 tablet, he will pick this one, which really literally has no... nobody's going to buy this for me. There's no trade-in value for this. Like, to anybody else, this is, the sound quality is terrible. It blacks out all the time. It does have a good battery, we found out. But you can't really see anything that's happening. The the sound goes in and out from having juice spilled into the speakers multiple times. To me, it's a worthless thing. But to Ollie, it's his favorite. And I cannot figure out why this is his favorite tablet, but he's attached to it. And he's attached to something that's so broken. And while I was trying to figure this out, I was just watching him play it. I felt like the Lord was saying, you know what? Jesus loves the broken things too. And so um, what I want to do today is just kind of explore, you know, just how much Jesus loves the broken things. But not only that, he kind of prefers the broken things. And um, because he kind of, uh, he has good news and it is good news for us. So. I know that in here we have some really, really insanely creative people. I've seen some of your houses. I'm totally always jealous. Um, I would not call myself a uniquely creative person. Um, 
And what I mean by that is that I literally have no creative thoughts in my head ever. And so um, if you see anything that I do that might be creative or beautiful or things like that, it's totally 100% because I stole it. There's nothing, nothing in here that's creative. There's no shame in my game when it comes to uh, stealing things. So, um, so one of the most impressive forms of creativity that I see is somebody's ability to take like an old piece of junk furniture and just repurpose it into something just gorgeous. And um, you know the saying like one man's trash is another man's treasure. Well, one man's trash is just it's this trash to me. So, um, but. I watch, you know, my mom watches HGTV and she gets all of these ideas and I'm watching it with her and I don't really, I don't watch it all that much, but I watch these fixer-uppers where they take like, you know, they can find an old dog house and then they just repurpose it into like a $2,000 kitchen table. And it's, you know, I just don't understand how they do that. But one thing, I can respect it. I can totally respect it and I might steal it. So... One thing that I love about our church and the way that Pastor Kyle preaches is that for the most part, there's always the common thread of we are um, uh, kind of weak, vulnerable, broken people who are in need of Jesus and how quickly he kind of runs to that situation. He's in the midst of it. He is in the midst of that mess. He still loves us. He still pursues us. um, And he plays a very big part in all of that. And so not only does Jesus just like deal with our issues, but he um, he's drawn to it. And uh, he has been since the dawn of time. So when, when God the Father sent Jesus to the earth um, in fleshly form, he could have sent him as anything. And I could just imagine that the Father was having a conversation with Jesus and saying, like, okay, like, when you get there, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know what I mean? And Jesus could have said anything. He could have said, I want to be a businessman. I want to be a doctor. I want to be, you know, um, a commander of an army. I want to be an earthly king. I want to be a fisherman. It could be anything. Um, but instead, God sent Jesus to earth to eventually become a carpenter. And so um, I always seem to forget that Jesus had a job before he, like, he started the ministry. For the thir- first 30 years of his life, he was like a normal person. Um, and so he, uh, he, was, um, he was a carpenter. He had a nine-to-five job. He had responsibilities. He was a man's man doing a man's job. You know, I could, I could always imagine, you know, that uh, at the end of the day, like, he has backaches because of the work that he was doing, or he had sawdust in his hair, or he had dirty, calloused hands that his mom always made him wash before coming to dinner. You know what I mean? Like, he had a normal life. And his gift as a carpenter was to take things that were pretty much useless and worthless and then to turn them into something that had value and worth and use. Um, Just like the people on HGTV would transform it into something valuable. And so he was a builder. He was a fixer. All throughout the Gospels, you see time after time him encountering these broken people. And then by the end of that encounter, you see them totally restored. And so we're going to look at a story um, in the book of John, in John 11, a story that I'm sure that a lot of you know. It's the story of when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Um, In the story, you're going to see that not just one man's life was changed, but there's a whole course of lives that were changed, which further goes to prove that when Jesus does something, it's not just for that person that's right in front of him. It's it's usually for a line of people that are going to be affected through one thing that he does. And so um, uh, up until this point, you know, Jesus is full swing in his ministry. And actually, this is the last miracle that he does before ultimately starting Passion Week. This is the last miracle that he does that kind of catapults him into the events leading to his death. Um, 
So we're going to be in John 11. I think there's Bibles under your chairs. You can find it in your phone if you Google John 11. If not, it's also going to be on the screen. Um, But I'm going to get started with that. So a man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, the one you love is sick. Why would, why would they say it that way? This is, I always like, the best way to read the Bible is to constantly be asking questions as you um, are reading. And one of the things that I was wondering was, why did they decide to say, uh, Lord, the, lo- the one that you love is sick? Because we know that Lazarus was a good friend of Jesus, but Jesus wasn't really involved in this situation up until then. So it could have been anybody. Jesus loves everybody. And so why did they say, though, that the, the one that you love is sick? Why didn't they say the one that we love is very sick? Or the one that Mary and Martha love is really sick? So they kind of can identify who's the sick one. One of the greatest encouragements that we can have when we're, you know, even if you're just starting off or if you've been a Christian your whole life, It's so encouraging to know that when you pray, first and foremost, you are praying to a very loving um, and a very attentive God. And so first and foremost, he's loving. And so they don't say the one that loves you is very sick, um, but instead they say the one that you love is very sick because as the word says, um, it's never that we loved him first. It's always that he first loved us. And so when we go into a time of prayer, um, it's always encouraging to know that you can, remind, you can remind God of his love for you. God, I know that you love me. I know that you love this person. You first loved us. And so this, this is maybe what my need is, or this is, this is what I'm going to um, bring before you because I know that you first loved me. Our love to him is not even worth mentioning, but his love to us can never be spoken of enough. And so um, continuing on, when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus, Lazarus's sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Mary, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? Uh, Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. Uh, During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Now, the disciples weren't being totally unselfish in this moment. Like, yes, they were concerned that Jesus, who had just come from Judea, you know, he, he was, um, his life was at risk. And so um, they were saying, you know, do you really want to go back there? But what they realized was that if, if somebody was uh, trying to kill Jesus, it also meant that they, their life was also on the line as well. So they weren't being totally unselfish in that moment. But he proved, Jesus proved that he is not the kind of God to kind, you know, to say like, okay, you guys work for me. And you guys go ahead, make sure that everything's kosher. And then if it's good, I'll come after you. Um, no, he said, let's go back. Let us all, let's go back. Um, which is encouraging because a lot of times we're led into these difficult situations. I don't know if you know this, but the second that you say yes to Jesus does not mean that you're going to have an easy life or a safe life or uh, a worry-free life. It usually means that there's going to be more of all of that stuff. And so, but Jesus will never talk you into a different situation and then stand back and watch as you experience that situation, kind of lending a hand as he needs to. What he does is he stands beside 
beside you and he leads you into it. He walks with you. He's there in the midst of it, in the mess, in the muck. He is in that. The word says that even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, you, you don't have to fear anything. Why? Because he's with you. And so that's a promise that he makes and he'll always keep. Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he is sleeping, he will soon get better, which is such a mom thing to say, like, leave her alone. She's sleeping. She's going to get better. They thought that Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, which is also another mom thing, like, okay, guys, all right, Lazarus is dead, all right? Uh, And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. So doubting Thomas, I mean, that's his name, isn't it? I mean, he just wears his doubt right on his sleeve again. He didn't even try to, like, hide it or be shy about it. Like, okay, everybody, Jesus insists we all go to Judea. Well, let's go die now. Um, (laughs) Which is really funny to me. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Why in the world did Jesus wait four days before even leaving? That's something that I have always wondered. I'm so glad that I did a little bit of research on this. But he knew that Lazarus was sick. He could have left in time to get there before Lazarus had even died. Um, But he chose to wait and wait and wait and wait until Lazarus was already four days sick, um, dead to go. Jesus waited to come to Lazarus to prove the miracle that he was about to do and to in effect, to leave no room for doubt um, or question that he was the one who made Lazarus better. If he would have gone to Lazarus sooner, while Lazarus was still sick, people could have said that Lazarus got better on his own before Jesus even got there. Or that he had, sure, that he had healed him, but he had done nothing more for Lazarus than he had done for countless other people before him. If he would have went... Um, When Lazarus was newly dead, once again, he would have done nothing more for Lazarus by raising him from the dead than he had done for other people throughout the Gospels. You've seen him raise people from the dead. They were just dead, um, so he wouldn't have been doing anything new. But Lazarus was, like, super dead, you guys. Four days. Like, there's no coming back from that. And so some might say that Jesus must not have cared for Lazarus as much if he took his sweet time getting to him. But it's on the contrary. What we're going to see is that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus so much and saw them as such good friends. You know how, like, you want to do something special? Like, for Mother's Day, okay? So you might be thinking of doing something for your mom that's, like, totally going to blow her out of the water. Like, total surprise. You're going to get her that spa package, or you're going to get her that little vacation, or you know what I mean? Like, really cool things. You really want to surprise her. That's exactly what Jesus was doing. Jesus had close friends, and he found these friends in Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so So he's just like all of us. He wanted to do something special. He wanted to do something really special. And the only way that he was able to do that is to wait this long um, before he went back. So he does have gracious intentions, even when it seems like he's delaying. And I know that we're always in these moments of just waiting for the next thing to happen. And sometimes it seems like he's waiting, um, and he usually is. uh, But he knows exactly which point he's going to intercede, have faith in that. And it won't be a moment too late, and it's not going to be a moment too soon. Um, I was reading a commentary on this book, and um, the commentator actually said that Jesus will wait until what's called the last extremity which means that uh, the worst time is usually the best time for him to come and to do something in your situation. When our hope is lost, any strength or influence we have over the situation is totally gone, that's usually when he's going to move. 
uh, verse 18, Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Mary, Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yeah, Martha said. Yeah, he's going to rise when everybody else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. We're going to see two different types of responses to Jesus, two types of believers in the story. Um, We just saw Martha, who I super appreciate. So if you remember, in Luke 10, Jesus went to visit Mary and Martha. And Martha was the one who, like, when Jesus was there, she's the one, like, flitting around, like, washing the dishes and getting dinner ready and making sure the house is really clean and making sure that Jesus is really comfortable. And, like, she's, like, running around frantic. Um, And all during that time, Mary is just listening to Jesus, sitting at his feet and just listening to him teach. And Martha was ticked because, like, Mary's not pulling her weight around here. And then Jesus kind of called Martha out on that, and that was a whole big thing. So... I like Martha. She's a straight shooter. And so she calls it like she sees it. And though she may have her faults in missing the forest amongst the trees, we see here that there's no question. It's, there's no question of she knows who Jesus is. So that her doing all of that is just who she was. It had no bearing on what she believed about Jesus. She loved Jesus and she knew exactly who he was, but still being very real about how she felt. So she no doubt had experienced extreme grief. She lost her brother and maybe also experienced some hurt about the way that Jesus waited. So she did uh, what any hurting person would do. Jesus, if you had been here sooner, my brother would not have died. Straight, straightforward, I'm going to say it like that. But I also know who you say you are, and I also believe who you say you are, and I also believe that you can do something here. Mary, on the other hand, the one that you would think would be like more spiritual about the whole situation since she was the one who sat at Jesus' feet, totally went in a different direction with it. She had a different response to Jesus when he was walking in late. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Martha, Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus's grave to weep. So they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And that's kind of where that conversation ends there. We see here that her grief runs a little bit deeper maybe a little bit of resentment, maybe a little bit of bitterness towards Jesus because, um, because it really could have been avoided. So um, she did the same thing that Martha did. If you would have been here, my brother would not have died, but she did not follow it up with any sort of statement of trust or faith or anything like that. She just left it there. So I want to let you know, though, that Mary's response was not wrong. It sounds like it's less spiritual than Martha. It sounds like she has less belief. But I feel like sometimes we can get stuck in this mindset, especially as a church, that if you were going through one of the most difficult parts of your life, that you still have to impress people with your faith, that you still have to say all of the right things so you could say, man, I am going through one of the most difficult moments of my entire life. 
but bless God, I know he's going to bring me through it. Well, nobody believes it, and Jesus doesn't even believe it. He knows your heart. He knows the way that you are truly feeling. So would you rather, would Jesus rather you be real with the way that you feel or super spiritual? He'd rather you be real because he knows your heart anyways. And so the way that Mary approached this was she wasn't going to sweet talk him. Not that Mary, not that Martha was sweet talking him. She really truly believed what she said. But Mary was still in a place where she didn't even want to come out of her house when she heard that Jesus had come. She's mad at him. And that's okay because God creates us with all of these different emotions. He made us extremely complex in our emotions. So we experience things like sadness and grief and bitterness and unforgiveness and things like that. But it's not anything that Jesus is afraid of. He would much rather us express truly how we feel and let him work through that than for us to feel like we have to impress him with our words when we don't feel it in the first place. So just remember that. He knows our hearts. No matter, no matter what words we say, he wants us to be real with him. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him, he asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him? But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? So here we finally see that Jesus is experiencing some pretty intense emotions. Um, first, he's experiencing anger, which if you didn't know, Jesus does get angry sometimes, okay? That's okay. In fact, the translation of anger here is when an animal is getting ready to attack and they stomp their feet and they snort. That's the kind of anger that Jesus was experiencing in this moment. So why was he so angry? What caused this kind of emotion? Was it Mary's unbelief? Because that's what happened immediately before. Um, more than likely, it was not. The overlying theme of this whole section of scripture is life. And ultimately what was angering Jesus in this moment was he was remembering that if it had not been for Satan deceiving Adam and Eve, this situation wouldn't even be happening. There would be no such thing as death. There would be no such thing as sickness. There would be no such thing as mourning or grief because of death and sickness. And so what he was doing, he was so angry because... The curse that's on this world brings about so much hurt and so much pain to his people that all he can do is respond in anger. And so that's the kind of anger that he was experiencing right now. He was enraged by the hold that the enemy had on this world. The next thing that he experienced was weeping. He just out of nowhere kind of looked around and then he started to weep. And it was not the same weeping and wailing of the people that were around him because that kind of weeping and wailing was one that does not have hope. And if you know the word, you know that we don't grieve the way the world grieves because we have hope. And so he wasn't, gr he wasn't really even grieving because he knew that Lazarus was dead. He loved Lazarus. Lazarus was one of his best friends, but he wasn't grieving. Why? Because he knew that he was about to do something really big. And so he's not grieving over his death his weeping was just an act of compassion he saw the people's distress he was overcome with emotion it was the hurting of the people so be confident that if you believe in Jesus that the emotions that you experience in your life and in your situations whether whether it be if you've experienced injustice in your life he's angry about that if somebody close to you um, is no longer in your life, he grieves with you. Like, he experiences those same emotions that you experience because he's so very personal. Um, 
Jesus was still angry, verse 38, as he arrived to the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see, the, see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I will say it out loud for the sake of the people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. And many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. So all throughout the story, we're seeing Jesus encounter broken people. One by one, we're seeing him first encounter them, and then he touches that brokenness in a way that kind of brings them to be restored again. So the disciples, they had a lack of faith. They were afraid to go back to Judea. Jesus said, no, no, it's okay. I'm going to be with you. It's all right. I'm walking with you. And so he kind of encountered that. Mary and Martha, they were both extremely broken by grief, disappointment, regret. And one by one, he has a moment with them that kind of restores them back to belief in him. Um, Lazarus himself was as broken as he could be. I mean, he was dead. So no hope at all. He didn't even know what his need was, but Jesus did. If Jesus can heal the brokenness of death, death itself, surely he can heal ours. So I've been in the ministry for about off and on 12 years, most of that time I've been in some sort of ministry position as a pastor or a paid staff member or something like that. And in those 12 years, um, you know, you hear a lot of stories, you see a lot of brokenness. I have never seen brokenness like I do now where I work. And so God does have a plan, but what we need to first do is to, to um, identify what that need is, what that brokenness is in our lives. Some of you are a chair with a cracked leg. You know, God can still kind of use you, but he has to be really, really careful not to put too much pressure on that, on that cracked part, that broken part of your life, because just too much pressure might cause you to buckle under the pressure. And so um, what is that? What, what is that area in my life? What is that area in your life that we haven't quite given God full permission to apply pressure to? Did you go out on a limb and try to tell somebody about Jesus and they totally rejected you? Been there, done that. Have you been abused, manipulated, devastated by somebody you trusted never to hurt you? So you refuse to fully trust anybody again. Do you suffer from anxiety? So that you want to give God all of your heart and all of your life, you can't seem to shed that anxiety that maybe he's just not going to pull through for you. Did you trust him to do something in the past that you believed with all of your heart that he would do, and he did not do it? I have a story like that. <clears throat> About six years ago, my cousin, um, her name is Rachel, she was 29 years old, and she, uh, she was diagnosed with cancer, mother of four, um, diagnosed with cancer, and um, it was such a rare form of sarcoma that she, the chemo that she actually was uh, going through was from the 70s. So it was very, very rare. It was very unresearched and just, just didn't have a lot of answers for her. And so um, she went through a couple years of really intense chemo, radiation. Um, she lost all of her hair. She got really frail. Um, the cancer originated in her leg, and so they had to do surgery. So she had no use of this leg anymore. She had to walk with a walker at 30 years old. And so, um, but in the midst of all of that, she found the Lord. And so she came to our church. 
had just a really beautiful um, encounter with Jesus. I was had the opportunity to baptize her. She then brought her entire family, who then all met Jesus and now are still living for the Lord. Um, and uh, so it was just this beautiful kind of testimony of even in the hardest parts of her life, um, really beautiful things were happening. And so um, we were going through a series at our church. I was I was the pastor at that church, and we were going through a series where the the, the congregation was able to ask a question, and then we would answer it via sermon. And so they'd ask questions. We'd have a little bit of time to prepare, and then we'll do the sermon. And so the sermon that I was, uh, the question that I was asked was, um, why do bad things happen to good people? Which is an excellent thing to study if you're into studying, and it's an awesome message that I'm not going to preach right now, obviously. But I was in the middle of that message, and I saw her walk in and sit down, and I felt like the Lord was telling me, uh, you need to have everybody in this room pray for her right now. And so what I did, I have never, and I don't know if you've ever had a a time like this in your life, I have never felt more faith in that moment in my entire life. And I'm 31 years old. And so I had all of the faith that I felt like I could muster. And I I felt like the Lord was telling me to say, listen, Rachel, you are not going to die from this. This cancer will not beat you. You're going to overcome it. You're going to be healed. You're going to be a testimony. People are going to get saved because of you. I mean, I was like, this was, this was the moment. All 200 people that were in the room gathered around her and prayed for her. Like, it was a powerful moment. Super, super powerful. Six months later, she died. And so in this moment, I'm thinking, okay, well, first of all, I'm a pastor of a church, and I said this in front of all of these people, and why did this not happen? So I'm trying to deal with my own okay, God, I'm not really sure why this happened. I'm not really sure why, you know, I felt like you were speaking in this moment, and I'm not sure. So the family had asked me to uh, do her funeral, which in itself was like the hardest thing that I've ever done in my entire life. Because not only am I doing this for somebody who's a family member for me and who was young and who should not have died of cancer, but also I'm dealing with my own, I don't know how I feel about this dealing with my own, like, little bit of a shaken faith because I, I wasn't sure what God was doing here. And so um, I was able to do the, the, the funeral. I had walked into the funeral, well, to the church where the funeral was, and the first person who comes up to me is her husband. And he stops me and he looks at me and he said, why did this happen? And so as a pastor, you're supposed to have all of the answers, you're supposed to be able to, like, just tick off some Bible scriptures and be able to, like, put their heart at ease. And all I said was, Jeremiah, I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know why this happened. I can't answer that. All I know is that I have my message here, and I'm going to read it to all of you guys and probably go home and go to bed. You know what I mean? Like, that's kind of where I was at. I wasn't even sure what I believed in that moment. So the amazing thing was that in the midst of that message, Rachel loved the Lord with all of her heart, and I knew in that moment that she would want every single person who was in that room, all three, 400 people, because she was so loved, um, to know the love of Jesus. And so in that moment, in, in, in a moment of like, oh, just so much grief and sadness and confusion, I was able to share the gospel of Jesus to like 400 people, many of whom had no idea who Jesus was, because she came from kind of like a, you know, she had questionable friends. And so, you know what I mean? So Tons of people were nodding. Tons of people prayed. Tons of people then began to um, send me messages on Facebook saying, I've never heard the Bible taught like that. I've never known that Jesus could care for me like that. And I was hearing testimony after testimony after testimony of how Rachel's life and ultimately her death was able to bring so many people to Jesus. C.S. Lewis says, 
Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed done, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one that you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor here, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. Jesus, in his goodness and his graciousness, his patience, his affection, he will see those broken areas of your life, the hurt, guilt, shame, anxiety, resentment, unforgiveness, and he is more than willing to repair those areas of your heart. But like with Rachel, it might not be in the way that you thought that it was going to happen, and many times that mending of the broken things often hurts more than it helps at first. You might not be able to see what God is doing. You might not have, like, you might just have what's right in front of you and it might not seem like God is doing anything or he's waiting too long or he's not doing it the way that you thought. But everything that he does is like that master carpenter where he he is taking something that is broken and he's fixing it into something that's usable and full of glory again. Rachel was expecting to be healed from cancer and Jesus did give her ultimately the best healing that she could have ever, ever, ever received. I mean, she is standing before Jesus now having the time of her life, but it wasn't what we were expecting. But he's always in the business of making things beautiful again. And everything that he does here on earth is just a glimpse of what his plan is in the future. The book of Revelation says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. When I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. If we can hold on, wherever you're at in your life, if you can hold on, everything can be made new again. Mourning can be turned to dancing. Anxiety can be turned to confidence. Disappointment can become a testimony. Unforgiveness can become a restored relationship. Sickness and disease can be healed. Addiction can turn to freedom. A cross of shame can become a throne. A cup of wrath can be used for communion. A wooden graveyard tomb can be turned into a flower bed. And death can be turned to life. Maybe today, maybe today if we saw Jesus as that master carpenter, we can look at those broken areas of our life and allow them to be seen and allow them to be touched and tweaked and sanded down. Then maybe God can do something new in us today. He makes everything new. He makes everything new. Everything that we think could never be fixed again, he can fix that. If we just give him the opportunity to first see it and then let him do what he does best. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for every single life that's represented here today. Thank you for the people who came because of a loved one for Mother's Day. Thank you for the moms. Thank you for 
um, the influence that moms and strong women in our lives can have. Thank you so much for the plan that you have for every single person here. And I thank you even more that every person in here is starting to think of those things in their lives that might be a little bit broken. Father, I pray that you would be that master carpenter in their life. At first, you would acknowledge what it is, but also then that you in your gentleness and your patience would begin to sand those rough areas down and to apply that really good wood glue and put things back together and restore things and so that they're, they're more valuable than they ever were before. Thank you for your handiwork. Father, these are your creations. And so they are perfect and they're new and they're beautiful to you. Thank you so much for what you're doing here today. God, we honor you, we bless you, we worship you today. In your name we pray. Amen. What did I tell you about all these? <laughs> did you see them? Oh, man. My prayer for you uh, this week is that you would understand that the love and affection devotion that we pour out on Jesus is being poured out on us too. It's not just one-sided. That you are very loved and that you are very worthy of love. Happy Mother's Day to all you sweet mamas, and I hope to see you guys back next week. Have a good day.